It's your pal Siri. You have found the Ambiguously Blind Podcast, where we are challenging beliefs and revealing abilities that make people extraordinary. With your host, a guy that's great at hearing, but terrible at listening, John Grimes. Hey, 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 greetings. Welcome back. Thanks for tuning in, subscribing, and supporting the podcast experience. And I really do mean that. Thanks for your support. It is because of you, the uh, dear listeners, that this little podcast continues to move and groove and uh, get jiggy with it in the podcast space and really reach some some people and places that uh, I really thought were were kind of unreachable in the past. But that, that seems to be happening more and more often. So uh, again, thank you so much for the support. Continue uh, sharing and tweeting and Facebooking and all those social areas and and keep the feedback coming. I've gotten some great feedback as we uh, move into year three. All that stuff is very important and relevant to the future of the podcast that uh, we have still got some pretty big plans and some pretty interesting guests in the pipeline coming forward. So once again, thank you. Our guest for this episode is Kirk Adams. He is the former CEO of the American Foundation for the Blind, also known more commonly as the AFB. Kurt's got quite a unique sight loss story that occurred early in life for him and really set him on a path, I think, for for tremendous success. So we'll talk a bit about that and what he did to get to the chief executive spot at the AFB and what Kurt's got going on now as a consultant to really emphasize inclusion for people with disabilities in the workforce and in particular those with sight loss which are near and dear to, to a lot of people that uh, are involved in this podcast. So it's pretty exciting, and I'm looking forward to chatting with Kurt about that. Hey, Kurt, thanks for joining the Ambiguously Blind podcast. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Hey, this is, uh, this is a pleasure for me. I think you're the probably the first CEO we've had on the podcast. I mean, former CEO, I guess, but CEO nonetheless. Once a CEO, always a CEO, right? Yeah, then uh, there aren't enough of us. So <laughs> one of the things I'm really interested in is helping to create uh, pathways to leadership for people who are blind. My theory being that if there are blind people in positions to make decisions, they're going to make decisions that are more equitable for people who are blind and concerned. Yeah, I think you're right about that. I think that's pretty exciting and quite a step for people in the blind individually in impaired community. We we did. We have talked to quite a few leaders and things on the podcast, so that's that's always good. And I think there is a groundswell, like you said, equity and um, at least maybe inclusion and diversity and all those buzzwords that go around are are certainly things that are much more in the forefront of people's attention today than they have been more so than anything in the past. So it's headed in the right direction. I just hope we can kind of manage the ship appropriately. We need to, we need to speed it up. <laughs> heading in the right direction, but it needs to be accelerated. Yeah, and I, I think it is. Do you, th- do you feel like that is, or do you? Yeah, feel like do, it's... yeah, I do. I do. I say last five years in particular. So, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion really started with race and gender, probably you know, really in the '90s, seriously. And now people are thirty years after the ADA was passed, people are now starting to seriously um, include disabilities in their thinking around diversity, equity, and inclusion. Not universally, of course, but there are, there are bright spots and uh, there, there are places where there, there's traction. 
It was very interesting. I, I was talking to someone who's been in the consulting space a long time, and they said uh, it was reminding them of uh, in the 70s when people started talking about carbon footprint and zero waste stream and lead buildings and making the green choice and those types of things, which were new concepts then and you know new language, but now it's you know ubiquitous. Everyone knows what those things mean, and uh, you, know, you hear about it all the time. You know, if if the if disability inclusion is going to follow that same trajectory, that that'll that'll be a good thing. Yeah, so we're probably right on track for the next ten or fifteen years to make some pretty big leaps and bounds. And if I it's think so. on the same the same track there, yeah. Well, you're certainly doing that, and uh, you've got a new venture you're working on, and we'll talk about that here in a little bit. But I want to go back kind of the beginning um, because you're affected by sight loss at quite an early age. Yeah. And I don't know, it's, it's, to me at least it's unique and I, I don't know really how to explain it. So I thought, you know, nobody better than you to explain kind of what, what happened there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I, I was a sighted child <laughs> until I was in kindergarten and both of my retinas detached, um, sim- simultaneously. And I became totally blind very quickly over a couple of days. And, uh, you know, this was before laser surgery. It was the mid sixties. So I had, uh, you know, some uh, unsuccessful, um, surgeries to try to uh, remedy the, the issue. My, uh, parents were pretty young themselves. I think they were 26 ish when that happened. And at that time, um, blind kids and deaf kids were not, uh, welcome or encouraged to attend their local school. They were, um, the model was to go to a state specialized school and learn the, the skills necessary to then transition in, into public school. My parents visited the Washington State School for the Blind, were not impressed, and uh, were, uh, it was suggested they visit the Oregon State School, which they did. And they liked it, so they we were living north of Seattle. They quit their jobs, moved to Oregon, so I could go to the Oregon State School for the Blind, which I did first, second, third grade, and learned my blindness skills. Braille, reading, writing, typing on a typewriter at that time. So nice, yeah. You know, I've, when I've I went to public, yeah. yeah, yeah, with a ribbon, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you, you know, travel confidently with a cane. And you know, looking back, I was 110 blind kids and uh, some teachers. It was run run by some cool hippies in the 60s, and they got us out in the woods and climbing trees and backpacking. And uh, I remember cutting. Uh, firewood with a crosscut saw out in the out in the woods and being in the tide pools on the coast and just really helped us to be comfortable as blind people moving around in space and uh you know with our you know, appreciating and loving what our bodies could do and uh getting bumped and scraped and all the stuff kids do yeah that's certainly not not the education you would have gotten at the public school no and, and you know Knowing uh, ambiguously blind, I've listened listened to your to your podcast before. So you know, thinking about this conversation we're about to have now, in my case, I was totally blind. There was no question: should he, this kid learn Braille? Should we try to you know use magnification? Mm-hmm. You know, I had to learn Braille. I had to use to, you know, I had to use a cane. I had to learn how to type on a typewriter so I could type my assignments for know sighted teachers so it, it was no question and um you know re- re- pros and cons to everything but it, but in that case becoming totally blind suddenly just made it crystal clear that i had to learn those those blindness skills and i 
learned them very, very well. Kind of a funny story I have on that. When so I, my site change happened when I was nineteen, almost twenty, and I I'm always been a kind of view. I guess I would consider myself a computer nerd, very technology. I pay a lot of attention to technology forever. My first computer was an Apple IIc and, and so on and so forth, and we went through all that stuff. And uh, I was pretty proficient typing, but I used the old hunt and peck method. And mm-hmm. even in high school, I took keyboarding, but I, I didn't I didn't want to spend the time to learn how to you know efficiently type because I did it fast, and I was usually one of the fastest ones anyway. But I, I didn't use any kind of structure. It was just winging it the whole time, but uh-huh. it, I was really good at it. And it wasn't until I had the sight loss that all of a sudden I can't see the keys now. So I went, I had to go back to keyboarding. <laughs> okay. And I do remember it being kind of funny because I went to this keyboarding class and they had a, um, like a, uh, like a piece of plastic they would put over the, to cover the keys, like your hands could fit under it. Oh, but, okay. But the plastic would go over so you couldn't see the keys. Right. And the guy's putting it, he was going to put it on my keyboard. I was like, you don't, you don't have to. Yeah. We're good. I'm, I'm, and so I picked that up fast, and I'm, I'm a super right. duper fat typer now. I mean, I have been ever since, really. But um, it's just amazing what, like you said, when, when you have to, you learn. You know, mother is the uh, or um, um, necessity. Necessity is the mother of invention. Is the mother yeah. of invention. Yeah. yeah. And, and um, you know, I, I, I get it. Where, you know, if you have a, if you're a parent, and you have a kid who has some usable vision. With technology now, you may, you know, may maybe the short term easier route to have have the, the kid listen to everything, yeah, audibly. It's, it's certainly different now than it would have been then. But yeah. you know, I'm, and I guess I got your opinion on this, being through what you were through, because I have talked to some people that would go to the like the state blind school, and they'd go K through twelve or whatever the age mm-hmm. limits were. And I've heard both. I've heard people say that it was the greatest thing ever, and I've heard people say it was the worst thing ever. And just because of either, I guess it's how you look at it or what your experience yeah. was and kind of what your personality is. Yeah. Um, whether oh, yeah. whether you want to stay in that, that nurturing yeah. biosphere for, for maybe too long and then you get maybe uh, a little too softer. And I don't know if the schools have different philosophies. I, I, I mean, I know people who went you know, through high school at schools for the blind who are very successful, well-adjusted, fabulous human beings. But it was... At the Oregon State School, anyway, when I went, that was clear from the beginning. The goal was to get your skills to the point where you could transition into public school. Yeah. Do you think that was a good fit for you? you, you yeah. Well? Yeah. In, in third grade, I, I went to the school for the blind for the first half of the day. Um, you know, as an eight-year-old in Salem, Oregon, walked about 12 blocks independently with my cane to a, a public school for the afternoon. When I did start in public school in fourth grade i was the only blind student and i lived in small kind of rural towns and i was always the only blind student and uh the um supports were really spotty and uh you know i can remember being in high school i had i had the 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 third edition of the spanish textbook while everyone else had the fifth edition that you know that kind of thing Mm -hmm. Um, so there was a lot of that there wasn't a lot of um there wasn't a lot of support. It was a sink or swim situation. Yeah. But learn how to swim. And you had the third edition because it was the fourth or fifth wasn't in Braille yet? Yeah, that's the one they had. Right. You know, that's the one they'd done. They yeah. weren't going to do, right. you know, it wasn't a high priority to do it over. Yeah, the inclusion club wasn't wasn't invented quite yet, huh? Right, right. <laughs> and then uh, 
you know, high school, uh, Snohomish High School up in here in Washington State, we moved, moved back. There were like 30 kids who were kind of the college-bound kids. So senior year, we all had uh, physics first period. Then we all went to math analysis second period, then third period to chemistry. And the chemistry teacher just told me, you know, you can't do this. It wouldn't be safe. You can't take chemistry. You know, go uh, to the office and drop the class. I went home to talk to my parents. My parents were teachers. They were both public school teachers. And they said, well, if, you know, if Mr. Mr. X uh, chemistry teacher says it's not safe and you can't do it, then, you know, that, that's that. So, mm. you know, I, they, put me in a, they put me in a study hall. So I sat in the library and read trashy novels for third period my senior year. But now I have met blind uh, chemistry professors. Uh, oh, know, yes. Uh, yeah. Do you Hobie. know Hobie Wedler? Yeah, yeah he's been on the podcast. Say, I know, yeah, I know Hobie. It's a good example. He has a PhD in chemistry. And, uh, you know, I just did not have advocacy skills. I wasn't connected with the, you know, the Federation of the Blind or the Council of the Blind. I didn't know any other blind people. I didn't know any adult blind role models. It's very, very much... Um, you know, isolated in that sense. So I, I didn't know how to advocate. Um, I, I know much better now. And uh, I'm very proud of seeing young people who know how to advocate for themselves. And uh, that was just a skill I did not have. Yeah, well, you certainly gained it. Um, it kind of started with the Lighthouse for the Blind and the, is it the Seattle area there? Yeah. Uh-huh. And what, what did you do with the Seattle Lighthouse? Well, I... Uh, uh, my bachelor's degree is in economics. I wanted to be in finance and financial analysis and, uh, had, had struggles finding a, a job in that field and did not find a job in that field. Um, took a job in uh, securities uh, brokerage in a uh, municipal bond sales and did that for 10 years and, uh, you know, earned a living and was able to buy a house and get married and have kids and those things. And then uh, got very clear that wasn't what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. So uh, I'll, I'll make a long story short. I um, entered the nonprofit sector through becoming a professional fundraiser. My first job was to raise money for the State Talking Book and Braille Library. I was hired by the Lighthouse for the Blind to start their fundraising program and their foundation. I took on more and more responsibility over the next five, seven years. And then uh, when my predecessor uh, decided he was going to retire, the Seattle Lighthouse did a wonderful thing. And he had a conversation with me and, and basically said, I'm going to retire in a couple of years. He was a sighted person. Uh, you know, he said, I would really want to do everything I can to have a blind person in those leadership role. Would you be interested in doing what it would take to be qualified to apply? And I said I would. So they actually hired a consultant who did an analysis and kind of map mapping my knowledge, skills, and abilities against what would be needed uh, to be to be qualified a, mm -hmm. as a CEO candidate. And then wherever there was a gap, we put a development plan together. So I, I had about a fifteen month period where I was really being trained and know, groomed, uh, not for the role, but to be able to apply for the role. Mm -hmm. And uh, the Lighthouse hired a search firm, and I, I applied, and I, I, I was given that terrific opportunity. And the Lighthouse 
It was a social enterprise that employs blind and deafblind people and businesses that generate revenue and uh, generate wages. Kind of the, the, the poster child of a unique career path is aerospace machining. 110, 120 blind and deafblind machinists making parts for all the Boeing airplanes, uh, Northrop Grumman, Boeing Defense. Yeah, that's cool. That sounds cool. Yeah, and well, I, you know, computer numerically controlled um, precision machining adapted with JAWS and Braille and 40 plus deafblind employees. So lots of tactile sign language going on. Really, really, really cool place. And I was uh, the CEO for eight years and uh, really accomplished some great things with the team. Grew the number of blind people and deafblind people significantly from 150 to 250 raised wages by 40% across the board um, to bring people up to livable wages um, expanded geographically. So did, so, so did some really cool stuff while I was in that role. I started my PhD program, which I finished after I went transitioned to the American foundation for the blind. So I, I do have a doctorate in leadership and change, which, um, it was very intentional because I think leadership is the driver uh, for for change, and I wanted to be able to be the most impactful leader I could be. Um, while I was in that CEO role, I was asked to join the board of the American Foundation for the Blind, which I did. And then um, eerily similar situation in that uh, the person who'd been in that role for you know twenty four or twenty five years, uh, Carl Augusto, had a conversation with me and. And you know, suggested that I uh, would be a, a, a good person to lead AFB into the into the second century. So um, my wife and I had the discussions that that we needed to have. Um, our kids were out and on their own and doing great, and uh, she agreed that I should put my name forward. I, I, w- I was offered that opportunity, so we moved. In 2016, we moved from Seattle to New York, where AFB had been based since 1921. A year and a half later, we we closed the New York offices pre-pandemic and opened a small headquarters in Arlington, Virginia, to be near the the public policy work in D.C. So then we we moved to Virginia, and then uh, during the pandemic, back home to Seattle. Okay, so let's uh, let's dig a little bit deeper here into the AFB situation now. As a guy who found sight loss later in life, um, around age nineteen or twenty, I didn't. I didn't have the upbringing like you, where you probably or were, were aware of those type of services way be, way before me. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't. I, I I saw them in. I live in Texas, yeah. and there's a Texas Commission for the Blind. Uh, it's got a different name now, but that's what it was back then. And so that was kind of the local vocational stuff. And then mostly for me at the time was schooling stuff, getting, getting things adapted and digital type stuff and, and people to help read things and test taking Uh all that. But I didn't really have much interaction whatsoever with the AFB, all the, all the letters. Yeah. So the AFB, the NFB, the ACB. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I just don't know. I know enough about them to be dangerous, which is kind of like my vision, my sight. I've yeah, noticed enough to yeah. be dangerous. So what can you tell me about the AFB? I know it's 101 years old now, so that's, that's yeah. pretty. Is that the oldest? Yeah, well, AFB is older than NFB and ACB. Uh, the, the biggest distinguisher is that 
the Federation and the Council are membership organizations, um, primarily blind members and you know allies of blind people, with state chapters and local chapters. The American Foundation for the Blind is a private nonprofit governed by a you know, volunteer board of trustees. No, does not have members. Very unique, I think. It was it was AFP was created in 1921. There were two professional associations. Uh, American Association of Workers for the Blind, which were people who ran workshops for the blind and asylums for the blind, <laughs> homes for the blind, uh, you know, those types of institutions that society felt were appropriate mm-hmm. in 1921. The time, yeah. And then the Association of uh, Instructors of the Blind, which are the teachers in the schools for the blind. Uh, both of those associations voted to put forward resources and and leaders to create a new central nonprofit that would use research and data to identify the greatest barriers faced by people who are blind, um, the greatest opportunities for inclusion. They didn't use these words. Speak on behalf of the blind in in the corridors of power. So AFB was was formed and um, it took on a lot of different roles over, over 100 years. Uh, hired Helen Keller in 1924 to be the global brand brand ambassador, which she did until she passed away in 1968. But AFB is unique in that, um, again, a private nonprofit, not a membership organization, a very broad charter, like uh, improve the lives of blind people in America. <laughs> so uh, at any given time in history, AFB could decide what that meant. So not not a guide dog school, not a school for kids, not um, focused on seniors, not focused on technology per se, but could choose choose where to focus at any, any given time. So, you know, I got very involved in um, creating the talking book program in the 1930s. Helen Keller and Eleanor Roosevelt worked together a lot on that, started uh Key, key in starting the National Industries for the Blind um, in the 40s, 50s, 60s, really got into engineering and creating some of the first voiced technologies, you know, the first kind of you know, talking bathroom scale and talking blood pressure monitor and you know er, er, early versions of those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They probably weren't Bluetooth back then, though. They were not. They were not. <laughs> and uh, so the iPhone, very interestingly... AFB had a, has had a consulting arm for many years. And when companies like Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon started to think about accessibility, many of them found AFB consulting. And the, the first first person, first blind person to use voiceover on an Apple iPhone was a gentleman named Darren Burton, who was an AF member of AFB consulting. He's an AFB employee at the time. He was later stolen away by Yahoo. But uh hmm. Yeah, if you track kind of all the blindness stuff, a lot of it goes back back to AFB. Hmm, okay, and so you were there, you were on the board before. Um, yeah, and then I was on the board for several years. I think 2013, I joined the board and moved on to the other side of the table and as a president CEO role in 2016. So what what are you most proud of, or or what what do you point at during? your time on the board and then a CEO with, with you at the AFB. Focus the organization, which over you know, the previous 90 plus years had become somewhat diffuse. 
and focused doing many different things. None, all of them good, none of them bad, all of them helpful, but not perhaps as impactful as, uh, as one would like. So, you know, I led a strategic planning process immediately and we got very clear on trying to change systems, um, which is very interesting with George Floyd and Black Lives Matter and people started talking about institutional racism and systemic barriers and that, that you know, became very current language. But that's what we were talking about trying to do rather than uh, you know, try to help individuals navigate the rugged terrain of being a blind person in America to try and make the terrain easier to navigate. So, uh, you know, trying, trying to look kind of big picture upstream, whatever language you'd like to use, you know, then looking at our limited resources and where we could have, have the biggest impact, um, kind of looking at three demographic categories to kids, you know, students who are blind, working age, uh, blind adults, and then, uh, older people who are visually impaired. Um, can't, couldn't do all three at once. So we focused on employment, we stood up the blind leaders development program, uh, which Neva Fairchild, whom, you know, there in Texas is very involved with. I knew to Neva. She's great. And she's, she's going to be on the podcast here in awesome. just a few weeks. Yeah. Awesome. So I've had two groups of blind, uh, fellow leadership fellows and mentors go through the program based on, uh, the Kuzas and Postner leadership challenge, um, book. And uh, so, so that that has has been a wonderful uh, achievement. And then um, taking AFB Consulting and um, kind of morphing it into an engine to prepare individuals to work in accessibility and accessibility engineering, and putting together an internship program and involving you know, both blind and, and sighted people who can enter the accessibility engineering field and uh, make it make a difference for everybody around accessibility so um to, to sum it up i guess we fo focus on systems change focus on employment and then putting uh, some really great programs together um, to implement now you you mentioned uh back at the lighthouse in seattle that the former leader there was was cited uh -huh. do you have an opinion on whether you think those roles should be for people uh, if the AFB or the lighthouse should be run primarily by visually impaired people or the blind, or do you think a mix of that, or can you make the case for fully yeah. sighted people to do well, that too? Well, I, I think, or maybe there's not one answer to that. It's, no, it's I, a, I think, I think there's an answer. I think there's an answer. I, I, I think that the goal would be to have people with the lived experience of blindness leading organizations that are, uh, exist to serve uh, people who are blind mm -hmm. so we have um, a chicken and egg thing where of course an organization is going to need to hire someone who has the chops to to lead very few blind people have been given the opportunities to develop those 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 skills so it's a small pool uh, of blind individuals who have that experience so I, it's incumbent upon the organizations, in my very strong opinion, to create those opportunities to intentionally put blind people in positions to gain the knowledge, skills, and abilities to lead and be at, at the top of that org chart. 
And like I mentioned earlier, the Lighthouse for the Blind in Seattle did that with me. I had never been a CEO of anything. Um, you know, I'd, I'd run a fundraising department. I, you know, had managed some people, but uh, it was a $27 million, you know, organization when I stepped into that role. Um, over the next eight years, the team you know grew grew it significantly to into into the mid nineties in revenue. There's a blind gentleman uh, running it now. CEO is George Abbott, who's uh, also a f- former AFB uh, staff person. Uh, Cindy Watson, who's blind, runs the San Antonio Lighthouse. Uh, Sharon Giovanazzo just uh, stepped into the role at, at San Francisco. Um, but I can count them on two hands. As far as you know, those those of us who who've been in those roles, so I I will uh, you know, bo- boldly say that it's the responsibility of every blindness organization to be preparing uh, and uh, grooming blind individuals for leadership. Yeah, I, I've been to the San Antonio Lighthouse um, for uh, some technology training or assessment. I think probably mm-hmm. fifteen years ago now. Mm-hmm. Is there some sort of relationship? with the AFB or the other B organizations and the lighthouses or does that run independent or? Yeah. So there are, um, lighthouse was a popular name in the early 1900s. The first, you know, lighthouse for the blind was in New York. And when communities got together and created, uh, nonprofits to serve people who are blind, a lot of them put lighthouse in the name, but they're all separate, uh, 501c3 three nonprofits. So there's a Chicago lighthouse, a Dallas, a Seattle, San Francisco, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Then there are, there are many others that do not have lighthouse in their name, you know, beyond vision in Milwaukee vision core in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, LC industries in North Carolina. Many of them have in common that they do uh, have employment under the ability one program and are affiliated with National Industries for the Blind. So there are about 55, 60 of the agencies, some called Lighthouse, some not, that are all separate 501c3 nonprofits, but they all employ blind people doing some sort of government, um, providing products or services for the government under Ability One. I think in Dallas, um, I don't know if there is a Lighthouse. It, I think it, if there was, yeah, I think there it is. Might- Yes, yes. Dallas Lighthouse is it was uh, it was absorbed by Envision. Okay, uh, yeah, I was gonna Kansas. say Envision because it's now Envision. Yeah, and I right. I do know some people down there, and uh-huh. it seems like they they do have some employment opportunities, and they yep. do make some things. And I don't, I think um you know the two blind brothers probably. Yeah, I do. I, I do. think mm-hmm. something one of their some of their stuff is manufactured. There. I think that's right. I can't remember last time if it's I was, glasses it was sewing, or shirts it was sewing, or what, but... It was tex- it's textiles. Okay, um, yeah. Well, last time I was there, which was six years ago, they were, it was textiles, and they were sewing some of their products. Yeah, okay. So those are pretty much all independent. Yeah. Okay, and then at some point, um, it's time for you to move on from AFB. You've done what you need to do there, and things yeah. need to change and, yeah. and you're a, you're a West coast guy and you're stuck on the East exactly. coast. And- <laughs> exactly. And, uh, yes, we were, uh, in our apartment, my wife and I in crystal city in Arlington, Virginia, we'd closed the AFB offices and it was the pandemic and counting on my fingers, March, April, May, June, July, August, six, six months working from the dining room table in our apartment. 
and uh, we have a house here in Seattle that we bought in 1990 that I'm in right now. And our property manager called and said, the tenants want to know if you want to extend the lease. And we said, we'll get back to you. And we talked for about two minutes and we called them back and said, no, we will be moving. We will be moving back home. And so did, did that in the fall of 2020. And so then, um, you know, was leading AFB as the president and CEO uh, remotely. It was a very virtual organization in any case. Sure. But, yeah. uh, you know, running the East Coast schedule from the West Coast, first Zoom calls at 5.30 in the morning and uh, um, had uh, largely fulfilled my uh, role at AFB as far as getting things organized and, and streamlined and restructured etc and i just um you know it, it seemed right to uh move into another uh phase um so the you know the afb board and i had those discussions and uh amicably amicably shook hands and uh wishing each other well uh, always will be i will always be a supporter of the american foundation for the blind but my last uh my last date day there was june 30 and when uh, AFB announced at the end of April that I, I was uh, resigning my position, uh, I was contacted by a number of people and organizations that I'd worked with in the past or gotten to know to ask if I could help on some projects as a consultant. So after you know, being a W-2 employee for somebody for 40 years, I'm now um, self-employed. I created an LLC called Innovative Impact LLC. And I'm um, looking for fun, high-impact, innovative projects that will accelerate inclusion of of people with disabilities, people who are blind, Um, primarily interested in employment and uh, in uh, significantly changing the landscape for um, inclusion of blind people in the workforce. Yeah, I think the first word you said there was fun. You're looking yeah. for fun, and that, I think that's, that's great. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, all of those stuff's good too, but you, you lead yeah. with fun. That's that's yeah. a good choice. Yeah. So I've got a I've got a couple fun ones. Um, it's a company called United Safety Technology that uh, got a hundred million dollar grant from the Defense Production Act to make medical gloves domestically. Medical gloves are imported currently, and the Defense Department has decided we need uh, domestic sources of PPE. So before the next pandemic, yeah, the the like when you exam gloves, when you yeah, yeah, the, yeah. yeah like the doctors, that, nurses, that, and that doctors and nurses use. Yeah. And when I'm on my barbecue grill and I don't want to touch the meat and all the yeah. stuff, so. yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're probably made in they're probably made in China, probably right. They're Malaysia mostly, actually. Okay, but yeah, so um, you know, there there were shortages. People, yeah, healthcare professionals, absolutely. frontline doctors, nurses didn't have gloves. Yeah, so. Anyway, these uh, it's privately held. They've leased a Bethlehem steel plant outside of Baltimore that had been shuttered. I got, I flew out there two weeks ago. It's seven hundred thousand square feet. It's huge. They're bringing in production lines equipment from Malaysia. Uh, they will have two thousand employees when they're up and running a year and a half from now, and they're committed to having thirty uh, percent of their workforce be people with disabilities. So. Uh, that, that's you cool. know that's six that's six hundred jobs. I'm helping them figure out how to get that done. What is the impetus for them to do that? 
the owner has a profound learning disability, which he's kept hidden his whole academic and professional life is, is one reason. And the other is they are interested in creating a, a, a unique culture um, that's focused on um, more than the financial bottom line. Mm-hmm. I was able six weeks ago to take their leadership team to Anderson, South Carolina to visit the Walgreens distribution center there. Uh, 40% of their employees are people with disabilities. And um, they've gathered data since 2007, since they stood it up. And they they have great data showing that turnover is lower uh, for all of their employees compared to their their other centers. Absenteeism is, is lower. Their safety record is better. You know, their, their productivity is higher. So just to see the culture of caring and camaraderie and teamwork that has developed in, in that particular facility is, uh, you know, very attractive to the folks at United Safety Technology. Yeah, that sounds pretty cool. It is. And then I am involved with a company, a cybersecurity company called Novacoast. They have 400 employees. They'd like to scale to about 1,000 over the next three years. Um, they cannot find enough qualified entry-level cybersecurity folks to hire. So I am helping them to create a program, which we're piloting here in Washington State, to train blind and low-vision individuals to do cybersecurity work and earn the, the first basic cybersecurity certifications to enter the field. And the premise would be to begin in Washington State, then ro- roll it out into to many other states, and uh, not only provide qualified blind applicants for Novacoast jobs, but also for other companies in the cybersecurity space. And there are tens and tens of thousands of open cybersecurity jobs every day in this country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I bet. Cool. Well, you got a lot of things going on. Yeah. Kirk. Yeah. Yeah. It's good stuff. And you're back on the West Coast now, um, traveling. I guess if you're going to Pennsylvania, you're back and forth, but at least centered back in the. Yes. The the cozy the beautiful of Pacific Northwest. Pacific, Pacific Northwest, yeah. That's it. Dang, cool. Have our first grandchild. He's eight months old. He lives about a mile from here, and he's awesome. Nice. And uh, so that's that's been a, a terrific um, development in our in our lives. What is the what is the difference between being a, a parent and a grandparent? Is there uh, the difference for us is it's time bound. Evan is a wonderful, wonderful guy. He comes over. You know, we have him on Thursdays for about about eight hours, and uh, we go fall you know full out um, at- attention and uh, joy. And then uh, his parents come and get him. Yeah, and then and you go. Then we're done. Take a nap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly right. And mom and dad are back in charge. Yeah. So it's it's just different. I. Uh, yeah, I don't want to wish that time away with the with the littles or anything, but I do recognize it quite a quite a different yeah, experience different, with the different, grandparents. Yeah, different dynamic for for sure. Yeah, but a super important one to have with the with the grandparents. That's that's yeah, cool. yeah. And our our daughter lives in the Bay Area, so we're closer to her now. And uh, anyway, just some of you know, I was I was born here, grew up here, and it just feels like the place to be. 
Awesome. Well, if uh, folks want to get in touch with you, Kurt, uh, we'll leave your contact details uh, in the show notes, so you don't necessarily have to say them. But is it email? Or yeah. You have a no, it's fine. Or... Link- LinkedIn is great. I use that a lot. So just put in Kirk Adams Seattle in a LinkedIn search, and I should pop right up. Uh, my email is Kirk Adams zero 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 at gmail dot com. Okay. Cool. Well, I'm sure there's somebody out there that. Once get involved in something you're doing, or there's another uh, one of those companies out there that needs to needs to get some other people with disabilities and and particularly blindness, and and you're the man for that. Yeah, and I'm happy to talk to anyone that wants to get involved in helping accelerate inclusion of people who are blind in the workforce. Thanks for spending time with the Ambiguously Blind podcast. Please rate and write a review wherever you subscribe and connect and share with us at ambiguouslyblind.com.